be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Now, there's an upside to that, and there's a downside to that. The upside is, quite frankly, please be patient. I'm not perfect. I don't pretend to be perfect. I got a long way to being perfect. It's not going to happen any time in this side of eternity. But the day will come by God's grace that I believe that Bill Rudolph will sin no more. But it's not happening short of either my death or Jesus' return. And if you're a Christian, that's true of you as well. So please be patient and be reminded to be patient with me. That's the upside. Here's the downside. There are plenty of individuals that want other people to be patient but have no particular interest in changing the way they are. And when it comes to behavior, there's two types of negative behavior. There's irk and there's sin. There are things that you do and I do that are irksome. There are other things that you and I do that are sinful. And the Apostle Paul has been talking about the importance of the law. Let's just take a moment again and ask God's blessing upon this as we continue. Father, open our eyes and help us to see and our minds and help us to be clear as to what it is you've given us to study today for your glory and for our good and growth in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to continue, but I want first for my wife to read verses 14 through chapter 8 and verse 1.
And that's that's good. I'm sorry, I told you too far. That's good. Thanks. What's Paul talking about? He's saying the law has come and the law has a purpose and the law is to show us how sinful we are. But the first kind of people that we talked about in Psalm 73 are those individuals, and I want you to think for a moment because I want you to kind of do an inventory on you. Not on the person sitting next to you, not on anybody that you may be related to, not somebody that lives in your house. On you. Focus on you. Okay? Psalm 73. The psalmist is beside himself because he sees evil people doing evil stuff and they don't care. They're doing it without any kind of conscience. Philadelphia hit a landmark today, a landmark number. Big deal number. Not something they ought to be proud of in Philadelphia. Set a new record for homicides this early in the year. 400 people have lost their lives as a result of gun deaths this year in Philadelphia. 400 people. The people in Philadelphia that are in charge don't really care. The mayor, the district attorney, they don't care. They're letting it happen. Nevertheless, 400 people have lost their lives because of people using guns in a malicious way to kill other people. Last night, 3.30 in the morning, a Wawa on Ridge Pike that I was in literally two weeks ago, 3.30 in the morning, somebody came in with a gun, fired the gun, and all I could think of, I was there in that Wawa literally two weeks ago. Not too far from our house, 10 minutes from our house. Not Center City, Philadelphia. Not the Badlands. Not Hunting Park. Not Kensington. None of the bad side. This is a nice place in Plymouth Township on Ridge Pike. Nice neighborhood. Wawa. 3.30. Anyway, there's those kinds of people. No conscience. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to run roughshod over the rest of you. I could care less. Now we come into Romans 7, and Paul is talking autobiographically in terms of there was a time in my experience raised as a, as a Jew, taught by one of the finest Jewish teachers, Gamaliel, and at some point I become a Pharisee. And my experience as to the law, blameless. He's living under the law, but he's got a conscience that's screwed up. Because on the one hand, while he's concerned about keeping the law, on the other hand, he's okay with seeing Stephen being put to death as the first martyr of the early church. So we have 
person number two living in a way under the law, but with a bad understanding of what the law is. And at some point, God uses that law to convict him of his sin, but he then is not yet a Christian. And when that happens, and it does happen, you can go in two different directions. The one direction is, I know what, it's, I know what is happening and it's wrong, or I know what is happening and I need to repent and come to faith. Here's my question to you. So far... Where are you at in this scheme? You're either like the people in Psalm 73. I don't think you are, but you may be. All right? You know God knows. Nobody else really knows. But when you get to Romans 7, there's a divide, isn't there? There's the law. God says, don't do this or do do this. And you may say, oh, I, you know, I'm not going to worry about the big stuff. God understands. Or here's a person that, you know, they start hearing what the law says. Maybe they start reading what the Bible says. And they're convicted of their sin. They're constantly guilty about something in their hearts. But they're not really doing anything with it because to some measure... On the one hand, they may be paying lip service to God and to Christ, but on the other hand, they think, but I'm going to just work harder at keeping the law. Instead of understanding that you can't keep the law, and that's why God's given us the law. To show how sinful you and I are. Again, I remember a brother just preaching. I referred to it last week. Let me refer to it again. If you're really a Christian, the more and more you understand who God really is and what God really expects, you ought to become increasingly humble that God has had any mercy on you whatsoever. But I say that because I know lots and lots of people with lots and lots of sinful behavior that simply want to explain away or excuse their sinful behavior all the time. And Paul is saying, uh-uh, I already dealt with that, folks, in chapter 6. Sin is dead to you. You're capable of living a life toward God and righteousness. That's the whole point that we spent for weeks in chapter 6. Stop excusing yourself. Start getting right about it. And I'm not talking about Ten Commandments stuff. I'm talking about some things that you might not even think are any big deal but I want to make them a big deal, and I want you to think about them. So I've, I've picked a few for you to think about. 
Now, before we get to those, let me say this, because a few people in recent weeks have asked me the following question, and it's a question that pastors get from time to time. And the question goes like this. Are, are, you, are you preaching with me in mind? And the answer is, and I'll be honest, the answer is, no, I'm not. I'm preaching with sinful human beings in mind, of which I'm included, because by God's grace, I try to preach to myself when I'm preaching to you. I'm not up here saying, hey, I've made it, okay? You ought to follow me in everything I do. You know, I hope the day comes that more and more I can point to myself the way the Apostle Paul did. But the reality is, I'm in this race just like you're in this race. So the things that I'm talking about apply to me just as much as they apply to you. Okay? It says in the Scriptures, Be thankful in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How often are you thankful? Are you thankful in all things? When Paul's saying that, Paul is saying it in this context. Look at your life. We don't know what a day will bring. Somebody told me some sad news today. I haven't been able to verify that sad news yet, so I'm not prepared to make an announcement to the rest of you as far as making it a matter of prayer. I need to find out some more information. But if the news is true, terribly sad. Terribly sad. And, and don't know whether or not it's legit. But to that person, first of all, I don't believe that person's a Christian. But even if they were a Christian, I don't know that I would say to them in the conversation that I would have with them, oh, I, I'm sorry for your sad news, but be thankful in all things. Because it's not the time or the place. But that's not the context in which Paul is saying that when he says it. When he's saying it, he wants his readers to understand that life is not under your control. There are things that are going to happen day to day. Sometimes they're going to be good and sometimes they're going to be bad. And yet, if you really believe in God, and you really believe in the idea of providence, that God is in control, then when bad stuff happens in your life, ask this question. Is God really in control of this, or isn't he? If, he, if your conclusion is, he's not, give me a call. Truly, give me a call. Because I want to go through the scriptures and show you why you're wrong. Because as hard as the situation is, God says, I want you to be thankful, knowing that when I say all things are working for your good, then I mean all things are working for your good. And what that means is, the good isn't that you feel good, or that it's going to be a good day. 
it means that we got business and the business that I have with you dear child of mine is this I want to make you ready for glory I want you to love this world less than you do and love me more and love where you're going more than where you're at more than you do and as a result those difficult those hard those bad things that you call bad, yeah, I want you to be thankful for those things too. I don't just want you to be glad when the doctor says, good report, I'll see you in a year. Now that doesn't mean when you get the bad news, I got a bad report for you and you're terminally ill, that you just look at the doc and say, oh, I'm thankful to Jesus right now. That's not realistic. God still wants us to be focused on Him more than how we're feeling about present circumstances. Here's another situation. Be angry, don't sin. That's what it says. And yet, I know a lot of folks that I believe are Christians. They believe they're Christians. And anger is just something that they wear. And it's like, deal with your anger. Be angry, don't sin. There, there's the qualifier. You don't get to be angry just because you get to be angry. Be angry, don't sin. Deal with your sin. Deal with it once and for all. Don't just, this is, you know, I'm just, this is how I, no. Here's another one. Hard. Terribly hard. Be content with what you have. Well, that's easy, I guess, if you have a lot, or it's easier if you have a lot more than everybody else. But again, he's not just talking about stuff. The writer of Hebrews, when he says it in Hebrews 13, he's saying, listen, be content with what you have, and here's the reason why. Not because, not because some days you got a lot of stuff, and other days you don't have as much stuff, but you know what? Down the road you're going to, you just send in that publisher's clearinghouse, and who knows, they may be knocking on your door. That's not what he has in mind. The writer of Hebrews says, be content with what you have because he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, wait a minute, Lord, you must have left something out. What about my stuff? And he says, if all the stuff is gone, I still want you to be content with what you have because I've said I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Period exclamation point. Now, are you as thankful as you ought to be? Are you a person that's got your anger in check? Are you a person that's content? These are real issues. These are things that, if anything, if you have an enlightened conscience, I mean, you can look all you want at some of the people of the past 
and say, boy, they must have been just a depressed lot and melancholy and all of that. I mean, you read through the Puritans and the Reformers, and it's hard to get through some of their things. Because in their writing, they clearly understood, I'm not the person that I ought to be. I'm not the person that God wants me to be. And I'm not going to make an excuse for it. I'm simply going to come to him and ask for mercy and forgiveness. Because his standard hasn't changed. And if I do that, I'm, all I'm doing is I'm, I'm changing the standard and I'm being that person like I used in the illustration a few weeks ago that, you know, during soccer or football practice, just cutting the corners and saying, oh, God, you understand. I mean, you know how I am. And he says, I do. I know how you are. And that's why Jesus died on the cross for you. That's why. Because I can't stand your sin. And I can't stand Bill's sin. And I want a people that are really going to be holy. And holiness simply means set apart. Be different from the rest of the world. When everybody else is complaining about, you know, life and how life just, I won't use the words that they use. You know, I was talking to somebody earlier, just on the way over, and we were talking about, you know, what a nice day and, and uh, no, you know, the clouds and the nice breeze and so forth. And, and one of the people in the van said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if God just made every day like this? And I said, I said, you know what? Eventually, one of us or many of us would be complaining about it. It would be like, oh, you know, I'm really bored with this nice weather. It's like nice again. All right? Our sinful hearts would find something to find fault with, wouldn't they? But think about it. God says, be thankful. Keep your anger under check. Don't excuse it. Be content. How come? Here's how come. As an additional commentary on Romans 7, listen while I read these words, and it's a, a lengthy passage out of Ephesians chapter 4, if you wish to turn there, it's Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 23, into chapter 5, down to verse 8. I'm going to read it from a different translation. Ephesians chapter 4. Again, Paul's not writing this just to have, you know, just to take up space so he can check off while I wrote that letter to Ephesus. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. Uh, let's begin at verse 22. Get rid of your old self which made you live as you used to, the old self that was being destroyed by its sinful... By, by its deceitful desires. Again, remember what Paul has said in Romans 6. If you're a Christian, you've passed from death to life. The old man is destroyed. The old man's been crucified. There is a new man. There is new life. And there ought to be reflected in that new life 
not only new desires, but new practices. Your hearts and minds must be made completely new, and you must put on the new self, which is created in God's likeness and remains itself in the true life that is upright and holy. No more lying. Everyone must tell the truth to his fellow believer, because we are all members together in the body of Christ. If you become angry, don't let your anger lead you into sin. And don't stay angry all day. Don't give the devil a chance. The man who used to rob must stop robbing and start working in order to earn an honest living for himself and to be able to help the poor. Do not use harmful words, but only helpful words. The kind that build up and provide what is needed so that what you say will do good to those who hear you. Do not make the holy or God's Holy Spirit sad, for the Spirit is God's mark of ownership on you, a guarantee that the day will come when God will set you free. Get rid of all bitterness, passion, and anger. No more shouting or insults. No more hateful feelings of any sort. Instead, be kind and tender-hearted to one another. Forgive one another, as God has forgiven you through Christ. Since you are God's dear children, you must try to be like Him. Your life must be controlled by love, just as Christ loved us and gave His love for us as a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice that pleases God. Since you are God's people, it's not right that any matters of sexual immorality or indecency or greed should ever be mentioned among you. Nor is it fitting for you to use language which is obscene, profane, or vulgar. Rather, you should give thanks to God. You should be sure that no one is, that no one among you is immoral, indecent, or greedy, for greed is a form of idolatry. And those will, uh, who, excuse me, you may be sure that no one who is immoral, indecent, or greedy will ever receive a share in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Do not let anyone deceive you with foolish words. It's because of these things that God's anger will come upon those who do not obey him. So have nothing to do with such people. You yourselves used to be in the darkness, but since you have become the Lord's people, you are the light, so you must live like people who belong to the light. That's all Paul's been saying. Stop with the excuses. Stop giving yourself a pass. Focus on you. Don't focus on the other people. Focus on you. See, again, you may have one of those little buttons. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. But don't use those little buttons as an excuse as to why you're simply not more like Christ. 
Because Paul is saying, quite frankly, if you understand clearly, what he's saying in chapter 6 and chapter 7, you're out of excuses, believer. There is no excuse. The law has done its work. And that brings us to the last person of the four in Romans chapter 7. The first one was in Psalm 73. The next two were in the first part of what Anne read beginning in verse 14. The enlightened conscience that is not yet a Christian and again, going to go in one of two directions. I think back when I go through this passage, when I've taught through this passage, and I've referred to this person before, a person that I counseled with for five weeks, knew the Bible better than all of you, was able to go toe-to-toe with me pretty well, raised in a home where she was forced to learn the Bible but at some point while she continued going to church, got involved in drugs and promiscuity, at the time she came to me, was living with a man, was involved or married to another man, and that man was involved with a woman that he had gotten pregnant, came to me for four or five weeks, and at some point, God used whatever we were talking about to prick her conscience and make her aware that when she first came in, she was truly believing that she was a believer. And about a second weekend, I challenged her to think through that I really don't think you're a believer, and here's why. And at some point from weeks three to five, came to a place of an enlightened, guilty conscience. But the end of the story is a sad one in that she came the last time to speak to me at my office in Bloomsburg to say, I want to say thank you face to face for showing me what I'm not and showing me what I am. But at the, time, at the same time, presently, I'm not leaving the man that I'm involved with. And I know it's wrong. And I know God wants not doesn't want me to do that, but I'm not quite there yet. An enlightened guilty conscience is the second person. The third person would be the enlightened guilty conscience that hears about Jesus and repents and believes. And the fourth person is the person who now has come to true faith and now lives with a life that is something like this. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So here's a person who knows. I hear you, pastor. I ought to be thankful. I hear you, pastor. I ought to deal with my anger. I hear you, pastor. I ought to be more content, and so on and so forth. And I struggle with what's going on in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Ephesians. But I find what's going on is this, too. 
that while I delight in the law of God after the inward man, I see another law working within my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing into captivity to the law of sin, which is my members. And that's why Paul has spent all the time and all the energy in Romans chapter 6 to say, but believer, understand, you're able by God's grace to put sin to death. You can't do it in your own strength. If you try to do it in your own strength, you're going to fail. But you are able to, and you must, that's what it means, mortify that which is in your mortal body. Mortify it. What's it mean? Put it to death. When a sin rises up and you can just feel it welling up inside, do something with it. But oftentimes what you need to do is not do something with it. It's, Lord, help me do something with it. Lord, help me to put it to death. Because my inclination is, I'm an American by golly, and I know what I ought to do, and I ought to pick myself up by my spiritual bootstraps, and God says, no, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to rely on me. Because you really can't. <clears throat> ah. A couple more minutes. I feel my voice going. I want you to rely on me, dear child, because you have no strength. You have no ability. I want you to recognize that you are weak, because in your weakness, then you will find strength. If all you're doing is hearing the pastor and going out here and say, I'm all fired up now. I'm going to deal with my sin. I can't wait to get there next week and tell Pastor Bill what a good job I did. You've missed the point of what I've been trying to say. Paul continues, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me in captivity to the law of sin, which is in my, in my members. And he recognizes the dilemma. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he reminds himself, I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind I, ser I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And then he says this grand pronouncement. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you're walking after the flesh, all you're doing is hearing the commandments and trying to keep them. And that was never the intent of the law. The law was to bring you to your knees. The law was to teach us, O oh, wretched man that I am, Lord, have mercy. You're the one that's got to save me or I'm just not going to be saved. And we just need God's grace because part of sin 
is deception. And we deceive ourselves thinking, we can do it. You know, we can do lots of things, can't we? We can teach ourselves to exercise. We can teach ourselves to lose weight. We can teach ourselves to use those computers that our kids have already figured out. Or any number of things. And yet when it comes to righteousness, God says, I don't want you to try anything without doing it in the strength that I provide. Because you're just going to fail miserably. It's not simply keeping the letter of the law. It's keeping the letter of the law, keeping the spirit of the law, and in your own strength, dear child, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can be like a Pharisee. You can keep the law until you don't. Or you can keep the law outwardly and look like this holy Christian when inwardly your mind is just seething with sin. But to do it the right way, it means, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amy, would you just do the collection real quick?